Let's open the Scriptures together to the book of Job. Job chapter 40 in the Pew Bible, page 564. 564. We're going to see Job's, or how the Lord addresses Job after Job had spent many days kind of struggling with the Lord. Then the Lord addresses him and and Job has a response. And the way that Job responds will connect with our text in Genesis 3. So Job 40, page 564. We'll read the whole chapter, the 24 verses of this chapter. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him." Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus tree covers him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Then we turn to chapter 42, a page over, and read the first six verses. So the Lord continues addressing Job, and then we read this. Verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent 
in dust and ashes. Please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis 3, we'll be focusing on the verses 8 through 15, but just to refresh us with the context, we'll begin at verse 1. Chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's as far as we'll go for today. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 118, 118, the stanzas 1 and 4. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last time when we dealt with the first seven verses of this chapter, we saw how our first parents broke their relationship with the Lord. It was not a pretty scene by any stretch. There they were in the garden that God had planted for them and with full understanding, with a wholehearted willingness, Adam or Eve and then Adam along with her, they chose to believe the word of the devil 
over against the word of the Lord. They chose to break covenant with God and establish covenant with Satan, who had possessed the serpent. Adam and Eve sold their souls to the devil for the illusion that they could be as wise as God. And our text this morning describes the aftermath of that diabolical decision. What sort of consequences would there be from breaking covenant with the Lord? What could man expect? What would the Lord do? Well, we'll hope to find answers to those questions as I bring you this word of the Lord. The Lord repairs the broken covenant. That's our theme. The Lord repairs the broken covenant. We'll see three things, total depravity, total grace, and total victory. Now, the devil had promised Adam and Eve that upon eating the fruit, their eyes would be opened and they would be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, they were in for a very rude awakening. We finish with that last time in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Their eyes were opened all right, but what they saw was not good and evil as God sees it and knows it. Before the eating of the fruit, they had only known goodness and innocence, but now they knew evil and they knew it through their own personal bitter experience. That's totally different from God. God understands evil from afar. There's no evil in God. It's something outside of Himself. But Adam and Eve, they understood it now up close and personal because they had become evil. They were naked, it says, and they were ashamed. On the face of it, that might sound like a strange result to be ashamed of their nakedness. I mean, earlier when the Lord had warned them against eating from that tree, He said it would result in death. But now we read that there's an awareness of their nakedness. I mean, what does that have to do with death? Is nakedness somehow being, uh, somehow sinful? Is, Is it a step somehow on the way to death. Well, we know that that cannot be true because before they sinned, Adam and Eve were naked and there was no shame. Scripture specifically says that at the end of chapter 2. There was no ill effect from being naked. It was normal. It was good. The difference now is that Adam and Eve are aware of their nakedness, and they are ashamed of it, and that, brothers and sisters, is the result of their spiritual death. It is true exactly as the Lord had said, something did die inside of Adam and Eve the moment they broke covenant with God. For what is shame? Shame is a sense of of self-loathing. It's to be acutely aware that you have defied a moral standard. It's to hate yourself for that defiance. Like when a student cheats on a test at school, and later on his conscience afflicts him, and he, 
He regrets it. He's ashamed of his actions. He wishes he had never done that. Shame is brought on by guilt. Guilt is brought on by breaking faith with God, who sets these moral standards. It's Guilt is brought on by walking away from God's commandments and going your own way. And that, beloved, when you drill right down, that is the core of death. When our hearts stop beating in our chest, when we take our last breath, that, that is one thing, and it's horrible, that, that physical death. But the, the stopping of communion with our Creator, the cutting off from the Spirit of God, the, the zero contact with the Almighty, that is much, much worse. And the moment Adam and Eve broke covenant with God is the moment they truly died inside. That holy and, and satisfying fellowship they had with God, it was severed in an instant the harmony they had once enjoyed with their Maker, it was gone. And the immediate result was an overpowering sense of shame, which later on would, and, and not didn't take very long, it would become fear and angst and pain and hardship and eventually physical death as well. You see, physical death is just the, the end result of the spiritual death. But spiritual death had taken hold that moment in Adam and Eve. From a life of, of true and, and intimate fellowship with God in His covenant of love, they switched over, they entered into an enslavement under Satan in His covenant of hate. Mankind became totally depraved at that moment. All of, of Adam and Eve's being, and, and, and we with them because we're their offspring, all of mankind's being, all of mankind's thinking, all of our nature became infected with evil. Our emotions, our mind, our, our thoughts, our deeds, our words, and the shame that they felt made it very clear. Humans were no longer comfortable in their own skin. That comes out a bit more clearly in the next action, in verse 7 yet. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, we might think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, um, they assemble some makeshift, makeshift clothes and they, they, they cover themselves. Wouldn't we have done the same thing? Well, no doubt we would have, but then we also would have made the same mistake that they made because they're busy dealing with the effects of their sin and not the sin itself. Their major concern at that moment was that feeling of shame and not the, the offense against their holy God. They don't even think about God right away. They're just thinking about the, the shame they feel and they're naked one against the other. They're not thinking about God. Their first action is not to fall on their knees and cry out for mercy to God. Their first action is to cover up, to hide their wrong and their shame. Isn't that a pattern 
that our human nature still has fixed in its being today? Don't we follow suit so often? When we sin, isn't our first thought the consequences of that sin on a human level? If we lie to somebody, then we worry that they're going to discover that lie and they'll be angry with us. So we busy ourselves trying to cover up the lie, to do damage control, to see to it that the lie doesn't get discovered. We, we, we cover up. Or if we gossip about someone and, and tear down their reputation, do we not try to justify ourselves by claiming that, look, everything I said is true. It's 100% true. It's fact. Yeah, I ruined their reputation, but it's fact. What is that? But us trying to sew together our own fig leaves and trying to cover up our own shame. We have become experts at covering up our guilt, but brothers and sisters, it amounts to nothing more than a, a pathetic apron of fig leaves that cannot hide, much less get rid of our guilt and shame before the Lord God. He sees right through us. It's all part of our depravity, this corruption of our nature. And that depravity comes out still more vividly in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Try to envision that scene. There are Adam and Eve male and female, man who is made in the image of God, that precious way of creating man, man who was appointed king over all creation to rule creation for the glory of God. Man, male and female, they run away from God. They hide. And why are they hiding? Adam says at verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid Adam and Eve have become afraid of their Maker. As the Lord approaches, they know the fig leaves won't cut it, and so they run for the trees, the biggest cover they can find. They are in fear for their lives. It's a horrendous development. Man who was the object of God's love, like God loved man. And man, male and female, loved God. But now, Male and female have nothing but dread of God in their hearts. Do you see that man's nature has turned from white, pure white, to pure black? From a heart of righteousness to a heart of wickedness. And we humans are still running, aren't we? By nature, we're still running away from God, trying to hide from, time, from Him. Even as Christians, don't we do that sometimes when we fall into a pattern of sin and we don't repent of that sin? Do we not keep away from God? You ever notice what happens to your prayer life when you let yourself stay in a sinful pattern? What happens to your prayers? 
tank, don't they? They shut down. Oh, we might put on a show at family meals or in some public gathering, but they're in private at our bedside. Do we open up to the Lord in sincerity of heart when we're indulging in sin elsewhere in our life? Can't be. Can't do both. Watch out, brothers and sisters, that you're not on the run from the Lord like our first parents tried. Do you think the Lord won't find you? Don't run away. Run to Him. Run to Him. So we see the, the, the great damage that sin brought to us, the human race. We have entered here into a state of evil. We've gone from harmony to horror. There's no good left in man. Adam and Eve can't stand to be in, the God, in God's presence. They even, they even begin to hate each other. Did you notice that they, they start blaming one another? When the Lord starts asking questions, then Adam appoints away from himself, even aggressively. Verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Does Adam take responsibility? No, he blames his wife, the woman. She gave me the fruit. Does that, does that sound familiar, beloved? We know that playbook, don't we? Adam's depravity, though, goes even deeper, for he blames not only his wife, he dares to turn around and blame God himself, the woman whom you gave me, Lord. What audacity, what brazenness comes out of this sinful heart of ours, daring to blame God for his own rebellion while he paints himself coming out like a rose. Brothers and sisters, we have here a picture of an unrepentant, self-righteous heart. And that's something we all can relate to, can't we? The woman is no better for she will shortly do the same thing in blaming the snake. But does anybody in this scene fall on his or her knees and, and take the blame, admit the blame? We all know by nature how to pass the buck, don't we? We are all experts, every one of us, experts at pointing out our neighbor's sin. You and I can detail the faults of others so very, very well, but how many of us are experts at pointing out specifically our own sins and then repenting of them? How many of us turn the light of analysis on our own hearts? Wouldn't that be pleasing to the Lord if we did that? You know, sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that admitting sin is the same thing as repenting from it. But those things are not identical. Adam and Eve, in our text, they both actually admit sin, but they find fault in somebody else. So they don't take the blame, but... There was no change in their heart. There was no turn in the direction of their life. That's why we read from Job... How different Job's response was. Job, who had 
had less privileges than Adam and Eve in paradise did, and Job, who had suffered a tremendous amount more than our first parents did, Job, who did not break the covenant like Adam and Eve did. Nevertheless, when Job is approached by the Lord to give an answer, to give an account for his actions and his earlier words, he gives this reply in chapter 40, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. You hear the humility in that? And when the Lord goes on to remind Job of God's righteousness and His inscrutable wisdom, and He calls Job on the carpet, we read a bit of that in chapter 42 and and 40, then Job humbles himself still further. He says in chapter 42, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, therefore I have despised myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. That, brothers and sisters, is repentance. We don't point to our wife. We don't point to our husband. We don't point to our friends. We don't point to the office bearers of the church or anybody else. But we say to the Lord, everybody's gone in our vision. We say to the Lord, I have done wrong. I am fully to blame. Nobody else. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's repentance, beloved. And if you can't say that, then understand you have not repented and you yourself are still in a broken covenant with the Lord. We each need to repent before God. Man's situation is here in our text is is dark, it's dreary. There's no good left in humanity. Man doesn't even want to go to God, but runs away in fear. Total depravity. That's us. What's going to happen to us? Well, thanks be to God that the total depravity is overcome by total grace. Total grace. For look at how the Lord responds to man. You know, the Lord had earlier threatened, we saw that, death as punishment for their sin. So all that Adam and Eve could expect was for God to slay them in an instant. It would have been perfectly righteous if God had sent fire down from heaven to destroy Adam and Eve, to to burn up the garden, to burn up the earth, to to just scrap all of creation and place the, the, the children He had made, Adam and Eve, into the fires of hell. I mean, why do you think Adam and Eve were so afraid? They knew what they deserved. They knew their guilt. They knew that God does not lie or go back on His Word. So, when, when the Lord shows up, it's going to be bad for us. Destruction is coming. Only, we don't read about fire, do we? We don't read about consuming wrath in the garden. Instead, we are surprised to read that the Lord comes walking into the garden just like He did all the other times. And when Adam and Eve run away from and hide, then the Lord does not lash out in anger as we might have expected. But verse 9, we read, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, 
Where are you? Where are you? God's first word to Adam is not a word of judgment, but it's a word of grace. Adam, where are you? Come here, my son. Isn't that incredible, beloved? I mean, think about that. Man has just insulted God to his face. Man has said, don't want to have anything to do with you, God. We're instead going to align ourselves with Satan and even embrace Satan's way. But still, God comes looking for man and brings man back into the way of life. Come. Come here. Talk to me, Adam. That is grace, beloved. There's, there's, there's just no explanation then. This is the kind of God God is. That's how the Lord works in His grace. And it's, it, it's the type of thing that blows your mind away, or it should. Though we hate Him by nature, yet He still comes after us. Though we run from him, yet he calls to us. If, if it were up to you and me, we'd be out there with the world, even this morning, wouldn't we? We'd be gnashing our teeth at God from the bushes. But because God is filled with mercy and grace, he has called out to us and he has gathered us here this morning as his children. If you and I were to have nothing else to thank God for, and each of us have plenty to thank God for, this one thing would be enough that you and I have peace with God through His grace. That grace comes out more clearly in verse 15, where the Lord curses the serpent. The Lord now does not excuse the sin of man. We'll hope to see uh, their punishment next time, God willing. But through the process of questioning, God traces the origin of sin to the rightful party to the serpent. There's a process of investigation there. Now, it's worth pointing out that these questions that God asks are not for the Lord's benefit. God is not here on a fact-finding mission for Himself, like some kind of police detective. No, the Lord knows how it all went down, but He wants to make it clear to Adam and Eve how it went down. He wants the record to be public. Remember that at this moment, Adam and Eve were still in league with Satan, Satan who had possessed the serpent. They had made covenant with the devil. They were on his side. In order for the Lord to, to break up that devilish covenant and restore man to God's own covenant of love, he had to make it perfectly clear to the man and his wife that the serpent is their true enemy, not God. Just moments before, they had believed the lie of Satan. They had trusted what he had said. But now God wants them to see that the serpent had led them down the wrong path, that he had deceived them, that it's the serpent's temptation that lies at the root of their shame and misery and their fear. Adam and Eve and all mankind must see that clearly for the only way back into God's covenant is to break off the covenant with Satan. You can't be in covenant with both. And that's why 
The enmity that God speaks of in verse 15, the enmity is such a gift of grace. That might sound a bit strange at first. How can enmity be a gift? How can it be a blessing? Because enmity is normally something that we think of in negative terms. Enmity is to have strife with another. It's to be at loggerheads. There's hostility between two parties. So how can hostility be a blessing? Well, in verse 14, the serpent, as an animal, is first cursed by being put into a position of utter humiliation. And then in verse 15, the Lord addresses the evil spirit who had used the serpent. He says to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This this is the Lord speaking. I'm going to do that. I'll put the enmity there. By nature, the enmity between Satan and humanity is not there. By nature, we humans, we gravitate towards sin. In our corrupt nature, we like to be cozy with the devil's ways. But God says, I'm going to put a stop to that. I'm going to put a barrier between you and God. I'm going to put hostility there so that you're on opposite sides. You wanted to be friends with Satan. I'm going to make you enemies. And that's for your good. Satan had caused enmity to sprout between man and his creator. But God turns the tables now and puts enmity between man and the devil. Is that not an undeserved blessing? God is keeping us away from the camp of our enemy who wishes only to destroy us. Are we always aware of and keeping this gift in mind? Can become tiring to always feel different from the world, can't it? To always be set apart, to always be regarded by the mainstream as outside, as something different, always going counterculture. You ever feel weary of being on the outside of the mainstream of society? When we start feeling weary then we tend to edge a little closer over to the offspring of the serpent, that is, to the unbelievers who themselves are still in covenant with Satan. We start to get comfortable with the world and blend in with the world. We participate in their forms of entertainment. We adopt their way of thinking and speaking We become close friends with unbelievers and maybe even start dating them romantically. Brothers and sisters, are you aware that the Lord, it's the Lord who did this. He put enmity between us and those who follow Satan. Do you maintain that? That antithesis, as it's called. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not at all suggesting we have to keep away from every unbeliever. Not at all. 
we are commanded elsewhere to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors. We're commanded to speak about salvation in Jesus to our neighbors. We're commanded to show kindness and grace to all those around us, to be open-faced, to invite them to come and know Christ, invite them to come and worship with us. Of course, we have to let our light shine before men. But do not let the light become dim. That's my point. If we start thinking like the world and speaking like the world and acting like non-Christians, then very soon we will be as spiritually dark as they are. We won't have any light to offer them. It's just as James writes in chapter 4 of his letter, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So interact but keep your light and don't become like the world. Evangelism and romance, they don't mix. Partnering with unbelievers makes a mockery of that enmity. Are we mindful of this enmity? Are we thankful for it? It keeps us from slipping back into that league, into league with Satan. We've been there once. Let's never go back, beloved. We can't afford to go back. For the devil and his people will be crushed in the Lord's total victory. That victory is sealed or signaled already in verse 14, where the serpent is cursed directly. Now, I just want you to notice in passing that Adam and Eve themselves are punished, but they are not cursed, not directly in their persons. However, Satan is. To be cursed is to be cut off from God and marked for eternal destruction. So Satan bears the curse, mankind has to bear its punishment. But there's a difference. As a sign of the curse on, on Satan... The serpent will crawl on his belly, we read, and will eat dust all the days of his life. Now, a question that often comes up in catechism class is, does this mean that snakes used to have feet and, and walked around? Well, brothers and sisters, I don't know. And it's impossible to say, and we're really not going to get hung up on that question, are we? Because it's not the point. The point is not whether or not the serpent here crawls for the first time, but that God assigns a special significance to his crawling. That's the point. Slithering around on his belly and eating dust becomes now a sign that he is under God's curse. We even have that slogan today, another one bites the dust, we sometimes say. It's a negative thing. It's a humiliating thing. Eating dust points to the utter defeat of the evil serpent, Satan. It's a word of grace that he eats dust. But that ultimate victory will only come through a very long battle over the ages of this world. The Lord brings that out in verse 15. Speaking to the serpent, he says, He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what's God saying here? He's saying this, the, the godly line, the children of the woman who have faith in God, 
versus the ungodly followers of Satan who hate God, who are in opposition to God, they will be, those two groups, they will be in constant enmity and struggle and battle from that moment till the end of history. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that you and I live each day in the context of the spiritual warfare? Paul writes about it in Ephesians 6. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus talks about it. As they hated me, they will hate you. Being a Christian does not mean that life will become a bed of roses. We can expect to be snake bit from time to time. And you know what happens when a poisonous snake bites. It's instantly painful. It racks your body with pain and, and all kinds of symptoms that are harsh. And there's a real potential to be fatal, that snake bite. So you have to be rushed to hospital. The devil, for his part, he's in this thing to win. We can expect then, as God's people, suffering and pain. When we show ourselves, when we claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can expect a backlash from Satan and his followers. The Lord Jesus Himself experienced this. You know that He is the offspring of the woman in fulfillment of this promise of God in verse 15. Verse 15 is the first gospel promise in the Bible, and Jesus fulfills it. And though He came to this earth to die for the sins of many people, yet many people hated Him. The offspring of the devil hated Him, though He meant them good. Jesus did them no wrong, but they couldn't stand Him. Think of the Pharisees. Think of the chief priests. No matter the good Jesus did and the words He spoke, they hated Him all the more. And the serpent, the devil, came himself, didn't he? And he nipped at Jesus' heels in the desert. We'll see a little bit more about that this afternoon, Lord willing. The devil struck awfully close through the hand of hostile crowds that twice wanted to take Jesus and put Him to death on the spot. The, death, or the devil finally sank his fangs into Jesus through the hand of Judas as Judas betrayed his master and ultimately sent poison right to the heart of Christ in His execution on the cross. Our covenant mediator was hated. He was hated by the world. And we need to understand that we covenant children will also be hated by the world. The enmity that God put there, it is a blessing at the end of the day, but in the meantime, it often will bring pain and sorrow. And yet that's only temporary. The snake's bite is never fatal. For even though the, the Satan latched his fangs into the Lord Jesus, yet at that very moment, unbeknownst to the devil, the Lord Jesus was delivering the fatal blow to the serpent's head. Satan was doing his best to ruin Christ. And, but because Jesus Christ kept covenant with his Father and he did it perfectly, Satan couldn't get the power over him. 
Because the last Adam never believed the lie of the serpent, never entered into covenant with him, the death that he died could never be permanent. So Jesus rose from the grave, couldn't keep him. He had no sin in himself. He rose up from the dead. He overpowered Satan, overcoming the power of sin, removing the sting of death for all who belong to Jesus, sealing the victory for God's people once and for all. The serpent's head, brothers and sisters, as our text says, it has been bruised. That doesn't just mean he got a knock on the head. It means this. He's been struck on the head, a fatal blow. That's spoken about in Revelation. The death blow has been delivered to Satan by Jesus. That means that every snake bite you and I might experience in the heel, every ounce of suffering we endure now as offspring of the woman, as people who confess the name of Jesus, every drop of that poison, it will be undone. There's an antidote now, and the antidote is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's healing effects. They're already felt today. As we put our trust in Jesus, we experience peace with God. We start to experience peace with each other. Light shines in our lives. And full restoration is assured on the day that the Lord Jesus Christ will come back on the clouds of heaven, and throw that ancient serpent into the lake of fire once and for all. All of this, brothers and sisters, all, all of this, this work of salvation, this is God's grace, pure and simple and overpowering, His grace to us in the victory of Jesus Christ. God in Jesus has restored the covenant that we broke. It's restored. We're not on the outs with God anymore. We are at peace with Him. So will we then befriend that treacherous serpent? Resist the devil in the power of the Spirit and he will flee. And then let's be what we are in Jesus. Let's be what we are, friends of God who enjoy His fellowship every day. Amen.